0: Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its reliability, its trustworthiness. Thank you that when we open up the scriptures, we're not opening up uh, the words of of people, but we are listening to the words of God as you inspired those who went before you and gave them what to say. We also believe that it was not just a word for people 2,000 years ago, but that it is alive and active and able to uh, to, to pierce through even uh, the intentions of our heart and our thoughts. And so we ask that our minds and our hearts would be gently prodded by the word of the Holy Spirit today. And we ask that as we listen to what you have to say, that we would not just hear with our ears, but that we would hear with our hearts and we'd be changed uh, at the deepest level of who we are. Only you're able to do that, God, and so we ask that you would do that through the preaching and the listening of your word, either through me or in spite of me. May you have your way today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I was thinking about this as I was getting ready for this text because something in the, in the passage kind of jogged my memory to this, but it had to do with the way that we tend to measure different successes or victories in life, and we all have those ways, Right? Uh, For you, if you have a personal business, you have a certain return on investment. You have a bottom line. That tends to be ways that we uh, gauge or measure whether we're doing successful or not. If you are an up-and-coming chef and you want to cook a meal, kind of the measurement for whether you're a chef or not is if people stay at the dinner table with you, right? If they like what you're cooking or they kind of leave awkwardly in the middle of it. Uh, If you're a parent, you know, we have measurements. I don't know if any of them work, but we have them. Uh, We say things like, "Well," or or we think things like, if my kid is happy, or if they do well in school, or if they don't uh, beat up other kids, or if they make me look like a good parent at the grocery store. You know, we have these buckets of measurements, whether they're true or not, uh, to gauge whether we're doing okay at a certain thing. And this is probably... Uh, replete all over our lives, even with the small things. Uh, Brianna and I love to go on occasion to get frozen yogurt. We'll get Froyo, and you can tell by the way that we engage with Froyo what is most important to us. So for me, I'll get the biggest cup I can, and I will fill that thing with frozen yogurt. I'm talking about until it looks like a flat tire just dripping over the sides. Brianna, on the, opposite, uh, on, the, on the other end, goes to frozen yogurt for the mochi. She doesn't care about the yogurt. In fact, she's told me on occasion, I would rather go to Yogurtland or wherever it is and just get a whole cup of mochi. And I'm like, well, why don't we just go to you know, the grocery store and get a bed? Because I just, I just want a cup of mochi. And so if you're looking at us, we have two different ways of measuring whether, whether we're happy or not, to be honest, for her, it's mochi. For me, it's just frozen yogurt. We have these ways of doing it. Now, you might be asking yourself, as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, speaking about the blessed life or speaking about the good life, you might be asking yourself, how do I know if I have the good life? You, don't, you might not even have ever been to a church before in your life until today, and you still might be asking that. This is a very American question to ask, right? Right? How do I know if I have the good life? We're all seeking a good life, whatever that is, whatever that means. And the way that we measure questions like that are different for every person, right? You might say, well, the good life is to be married and have kids. If I can be married and have kids, that is the good life. That's the dream. Someone else might be like, no, it's, I want to be single and successful, I want to start a business, I want to do this for a while. For you, that is the good life. For someone else, it might be, well, the good life would be to live in paradise with beautiful things and a lot of stuff to do, and so you move to Santa Barbara to pursue the good life. Someone else might be like, well, the good life is a giant house with a yard, and so you move out of Santa Barbara to pursue the good life. So it's, it's different for a lot of people, but we're all chasing it, right? We're all chasing the good life. We want to know that our life has been well spent, it's worth living, and it's good. And Jesus is no stranger to that. Last week, we looked at the Beatitudes, the blessings. And blessing is Jesus' code word for the good life. When he speaks to a group of people, he speaks to the poor, he speaks to the weeping, he speaks uh, to the destitute, the excluded, the people at the bottom of society's barrel, he's saying the good life has come to you. That's another way of reading the line, blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of God is theirs. He's saying the good life has come to you because of me. I am here to bring the good life to people who never thought that they would get it. And he uses this term, blessed, to say, in spite of and in the midst of some of our deplorable situations, we can still experience the good life. That means some of our versions of the good life are not actually good, per se. For those of us that have been measuring whether our lives are blessed, hashtag blessed, or whether our lives are good, or whether our lives are worth living because we have cars and we have money and we have a career, even a family and relationships and all of that stuff, Jesus blows the lid off of that illusion by saying the good life is available to people who don't have any of those things, the poor, the weeping, the hungry. So the good life, Jesus takes a step deeper. He says, yes, it is still available, but it's not simply locked up in money, food, affirmation, or all the things that we love and covet. It's deeper than that. It's on the inner level so that anyone can experience it if they'll just tap into what I'm about to provide for them. So the question, again, that we're still asking and have not answered is, what is the good life? If it's not money, cars, a yard, a giant house, living in paradise on the American Riviera, what is the good life according to Jesus? And Jesus actually has two words that he, he uses frequently to describe what we would use in our day to say the good life. One is blessed. And that's really the status of someone that has the good life. They're blessed. But when he describes the good life, he uses a different term. He uses what you might be familiar with, a phrase called eternal life. Now, eternal life is confusing for us because we associate eternity with time, quantity of time, Right? And so that actually, if you have a terrible life, eternal life might not be good news to you. You're like, I don't want to live for millions of years. I hate my life. It's terrible, you know. I want Jesus to come rescue me or whatever. But eternity or eternal life as Jesus uses it doesn't only refer to quantity of time. It certainly does. Uh, But everybody on the planet is going to live forever. That can't just be it. The Bible speaks clearly that every human being, whether they choose Jesus or not, is going to live forever. We are spiritual beings, unceasing spiritual beings, to put it in the words of Dallas Willard. So eternal life doesn't just simply mean you're going to live forever and uh, surpass the clock. It, it, it means not just quantity of time, but uh, quantity of life, but quality of life as well. And when Jesus speaks of eternal life, for example, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal or everlasting life. He's saying there's a quality of life that is available to people to come to me. It's not as simple as, if you come to me, I will make sure you will live for eternity in the corner where you can't bother me. No, he's saying, I want to bring you, invite you, into a type of life that you've never even dreamed about, eternal life. And here and there, Jesus himself will explain what eternal life is and looks like. For example, and this isn't our text. We haven't gotten to our text yet. I'm building up to it. But later on in Luke chapter 10, which we'll get to eventually, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and asks him a question. He puts him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You hear that? What shall I do to get the good life? What do I need to do? How do I get the good life? Jesus says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the Old Testament, which is an incredible passage here because he's speaking of every part of the human being. In other words, if I could paraphrase this lawyer who's quoting the Old Testament, he's saying the the law says that you shall love God with your entirety, your social circles, your ambitions, your mind, your strength, your body, everything. And love your neighbor as yourself, social circle. I didn't uh, include it in that line, but Jesus would reply to that lawyer by saying, you have spoken accurately. Go and do that. You hear what Jesus is saying? The lawyer asks him, how do I get the good life? Jesus says, well, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says to love God with all of your entirety and love people. Jesus said, there it is. If you can tap into that, you will experience what is good. You could be poor and hungry and and." disheveled. You could be by yourself, you could alone, but if if you tap into what Jesus pinpointed here, you would experience a good life. In other words, for those of us who like to measure, your life is measured by your love. And I should say that the quality of your life is measured by the quantity of the love that you're able to both give and receive. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Everything that you've got, your mind, your strength, everything, and pour out that love that you have received on your neighbor. The quality of your life is measured by the quantity of the love that you're able to give and to receive. But that still might not help some of us here, because love itself has been so used over time that it could mean anything to anybody. So even me saying, even me quoting Jesus saying, hey, you want the good life? Just love God and love others still might be a little loose for some of us because we've heard it, used, abused, mishandled, mistreated, misquoted so many times. Uh, I want to give you a couple versions of what love is not. One is the Hathaway version of love. You know Hathaway? Remember Hathaway? He's saying about it. He's saying, I don't know why you're not fair. I give you my love, but you just don't care. So what is right and what is wrong? Give me a sign. Anyone know where I'm going? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> In other words, this is what some of us think of when we think of love. It's only being open with others so long as we are able to protect ourselves from them hurting us. It is a lack of vulnerability and openness because of them. It is more protectiveness of self, kind of a hiding ourselves And we'll step out and be open so long as we can guarantee that nobody will hurt us or disappoint us or leave us disillusioned. Wouldn't that be a dream? You know what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, and this is the beginning of our text, verse 27, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, one who strikes you on the cheek offer the other also and from one who takes away your cloak do not withhold your tunic either give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods do not demand them back and as you wish that others would do to you do so to them so now Jesus isn't just telling us to love he's giving us he's giving us a tangible expression of the god kind of love as I'm reading that, how many of you are squirming in your seats? like, oh, okay. Last week, it was feisty Jesus, now it's uncomfortable Jesus. Jesus says things that are uncomfortable. Uh, Jesus sometimes says things that are comforting. Other times, he says things that are uncomfortable. Uh, but I want you to remember, for those of you that are here, for those of you that weren't, when we first started the Sermon on the Mount years ago, all of Jesus' words, uh, issued a, an invitation and a challenge to say there's going to be some heartwarming things that Jesus says in this, passage, uh, in this long Sermon on the Mount. There's also going to be some challenging things things that will irk you, things that will challenge you, things that you might be offended at. Jesus will say those things because he's Lord. But if you take him seriously enough to try them, I believe that your life will be blessed. Because it's Jesus. Sometimes we don't always know what's best for our own lives. And Jesus comes in and he ruffles our feathers a little bit. And at first, it's challenging and uncomfortable. But in the end, it's Jesus telling us how to live a God kind of life. I want to say that same thing to you today. Some of you are looking at this and you're coming up with all the reasons. Really? Like if someone hits me? Like is that an open hand or like knuckles? Like I need to know this. What if I'm in the right? What if it's self-defense? You know, like you're going through all the things. Don't Don't get hampered in the details. Because this passage isn't teaching us that we need to be doormats for people. Nor does it tell us that we need to put ourselves in a position to be abused by people further. Because abuse is real. And in other places in Scripture, we find that you are actually most effectively able to love people when you have healthy boundaries. So this isn't Jesus telling us to be doormats or to be beat up or to stay in those types of relationships. He is telling us to love, which sometimes entails boundaries, healthy boundaries. But what I want to get at in this passage is that this is vastly different from what most people think of when they think of love. It is more like the Hathaway song. I will love you so long as you love me. And I will give to you and be open and vulnerable with you so long as you don't cross me. The moment you cross me, I'm out. Or take uh, this example. On the far end of the Hathaway spectrum, I want to call this the Dale Carnegie version of love. Anyone ever read uh, Dale Carnegie? He came out with a book called uh, How to Make Friends and Influence People. And to summarize the book, there's basically seven, uh, six steps in how to engage people and make them your friend for business purposes. Uh, they're, things, they're actually really good things. They're things like smiling. I wish someone told me that when I was 16. Smile, Chris Lazo. I'm smiling now. Ask people about themselves. Don't just talk about yourself. You know, like a basic social etiquette. There's about six things that he runs through, uh, which are actually all good. But let's not confuse that with love, because the bottom line is that we are to influence people. There's a line that came out years ago called Paying It Forward, where you do something good for someone in hopes, like you would never say this, but in hopes that someday your return on investment will, uh, will, will land in your lap. And so we're making friends and influencing people so that later we'll be able to tap into that uh, social collateral for our benefit. And that's fine. That's That's actually good business. And it's not bad to be afraid of being hurt either. Let's just remember that that's not what Jesus describes as love. Call it being afraid of vulnerability Call it social intelligence, call it whatever you want, but don't call it love. Because contrasted with the Dale Carnegie version, where you are, uh, if, if the Hathaway version is I'm only open if I can protect myself from you, the Dale Carnegie version would be I'm being open with others to get what I want in the long run. Jesus comes in and says, if you love those who love you, verse 32, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. You hear Jesus, you can all, all, almost hear like a little sarcasm in his voice. He's like, that's not great. Everybody does that. That's like common practice. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. And all of a sudden, in a fell swoop, Jesus turns some of our self-serving and self-protecting definitions of love on its head with his own. Now again, those practices are actually pretty awesome, and they will make you friends, and we should do it. Let's just not confuse that with Jesus' version of love, which is absolutely radical. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, love your enemies. You want to tap into the God kind of life? Try loving your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To people, in other words, who won't return the favor and may throw it back in your face. Jesus is saying, if you want to tap into the type of love that I have experienced with the Father and the Spirit for all of eternity, try loving your enemies. An enemy is uh, one of those words, I don't know if you've ever experienced this when you're reading the Bible, but it's one of those words that triggers in me this defense mechanism, kind of a (laughs) self-righteous defense mechanism. Uh, It's a harsh word, because I'm not willing to call anybody my enemy for a lot of reasons. One, I'm a pastor of a church. We can't do that. And two, I'm a Christian. I love everybody, right? Right? do you have any enemies? Some of you are like, no. <laughs> it's one of those words that like when you lob it into a conversation, it just ends the conversation, sucks the life out of the room. And I don't, know, I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, this is a hard word to apply to my life, even though it's so good. Because that word is like, it, it seems so out there. Like, okay, when I think of an enemy, I think of someone who's trying to kill me, you know, or ruin my life. But that's not always the case. An enemy is simply someone that you don't want anything to do with. Got any of those? Though you may force a public smile when you see them at a conference or in the parking lot or at church, it's someone that you just don't want anything to do with. And the spectrum of intensity can be all over the place. It can be mild to completely hostile. It could be people groups. It could be a certain race that you might cordially uh, speak about. Uh, it could be immigrants. It could be your ex-boss. It could be someone you love because it's the Christian thing to do, or by obligation, perhaps they're your family member, but you hate for all intents and purposes. Hate, another word that we're not always willing to use because it's so unchristian. And yet, if we are honest with ourselves, do we ever experience that in real ways with real people? An enemy is someone you're simply wanting to avoid and have nothing to do with. Now, I want you to practice something with me right now. There's time of reflection. I won't call on names or ask questions, but I want you to imagine who that person is. Someone, it could be in Santa Barbara, it could be someone out of the state, but that one person in your life that you want to avoid. If they came in the room, you would, walk, you would walk to the other side. If you saw them in the grocery store, you would awkwardly make your way to the check stand uh, and try to get out of there. If you see them on the street, you cross over or you look the other way. Or you see them in person and instantly, or you hear their name or you see something about them or hear something about them and your shoulders begin to tense up and you feel stressed. I want you to think of that person right now if you have one of those persons. If you don't have one of those persons, I want to be your friend. (laughs) Because you are awesome. But if you have that person, I want you to imagine that person someone you really would want to avoid right now. When Jesus says, uh, because love can be so confusing for us to nail down, this is why I think Jesus kind of gives it flesh by explaining it how to love your enemies. One of those ways is to bless those who curse you. Uh, blessing, as you remember, is, uh, is the good life of God coming to bear on people who don't deserve it. It's the good life. But for a, for a person to bless another person means that you are essentially, I, I love the way Willard put this, Dallas Willard, blessing someone is the projection of good into the life of another person. It could be with your thoughts, it could be with your words. You could say something. They don't have to be there. You could just be like, gosh, that was, that was amazing. I'm so proud of them. Wow, they're going to get really far. That is, that's incredible. I'm so glad they had that opportunity. Or you can curse them with your words. Think of all the ways that we do that. Really, that guy? That's a curse. Why them and not me? It doesn't have to be words. We curse with our words and we bless with our words, but we also think blessings and cursings towards other people. You might just be jealous. Someone is being successful and immediately what comes to mind is not blessing towards them, but why them? Why wasn't it me? And if you think about all the things that they've messed up along the way and I know this about them and their character is like that, you're cursing that person You're not even using your words, but it's coming out. It could be your soul. We can turn our words, our thoughts, our soul towards people in blessing and cursing. And regardless of where you're at, you are either blessing or cursing a given person who's in your mind. When you're at dinner with someone and their face is across a table, your makeup as a human being made in God's image is to either bless or curse that person. You're doing one of those things. It might be subtle, but we're doing it. Jesus is saying to bless your enemies. Now, I want you to imagine that person that you would avoid at all costs. And now, think of yourself. Imagine setting that person up for success at tremendous expense to yourself. That's what Jesus means by loving your enemies. Imagine that person, you might not want to admit this in church, but you do hate them. Or you're at least hostile towards them. You don't want to have anything to do with them. You just want to avoid them. You don't even want to think about them. When you think about them, you just, your mind just starts to stir with anger. And now imagine yourself doing everything that you can, using all of your resources and energy and time to bless, to set that person up for success. That's what Jesus is teaching. That is hard. That will not make its way into any pop song. That is not top 40. But that is the Messiah. Telling us that there is a love out there that goes deeper than we can imagine. It goes deeper than we are sometimes even willing to go. Love isn't just a standard business practice. It's not mere social intelligence. It's not a guarded nature. It's not even religious moralism. Love is crazy. Because that's crazy. How many of you are ready right now to find that person, whether you have to call them on the phone, show, them, show up at their house, or just run into them and, be, and and just do something that would empower them mightily, even at your own expense, even if it was to save face or to lose face? Love is crazy. It's hard to turn off that, that knob of hostility, Right? It's hard to turn off the feelings of contempt that we have for people even if they're small. And maybe the truth is, the question you're asking right now is, why would I want to do that? I love hating the people that I hate. It makes me feel good. It gives me energy. And how in the world is blessing people that I hate the good life? I feel like getting out all of my rage on this punching bag in my garage is the good life because it's relieving stress. I feel like harboring that anger towards that person, that entitlement that I have, is a better life than actually going out of my way to bless them. And here's why. Here's one of the last lines today, verse 35. Jesus says as he continues, "...and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return." and your reward will be great, and you will be sons or daughters of the Most High. And when Jesus Jesus says right here to expect nothing in return, I believe that what he's saying is not simply uh, a command for us to follow. Certainly it is. We're to expect nothing in return. I think Jesus is getting into the type of life that his sons and daughters are able to live if they would trust him and follow his invitation. Meaning, he's not simply commanding people who are rageaholics or angry or have unforgiveness or bitterness to do something that they're not. He's calling them to be something that he is. He's calling them into a different quality of life, into a blessed life. To be able to say by their own spiritual ability, I don't need anything in return from my enemy. I'm free to bless them. I don't even need my pride tickled. I don't need my face saved. I don't need anything in return. I am free to give to them what I need to give or to simply be kind. It is really a freedom from entitlement, which is a nasty plague. Entitlement comes in various shapes and forms. For our enemies, it might be well, you should have treated me better, you should have given me that raise. You should have given me a job promotion. You shouldn't have crossed me. You shouldn't have embarrassed me in front of those people. You shouldn't have uh, uh, constantly looked for ways to put me down in public. And the list goes on and on and on. You shouldn't have. Why? We have this sense of entitlement, if we're honest, that we deserve better. And when things, when our life is motivated from entitlement, we get poisoned. What Jesus here is speaking about is not merely an arbitrary, impossible, rote, behavioral command. He's talking about a transformation of a person who needs nothing in return, just like him. Psychologists uh, call this type of freedom from entitlement, they use a, a particular word for it, they call it empathy. And empathy is different from sympathy, Uh, in the sense that sympathy is still uh, far removed from the person. Sympathy is this. It's, I feel this towards you, right? I pity you. I feel this towards you. But empathy is, I feel this with you. I feel what you're going through. I'm not feeling towards you. I don't pity you. I'm not angry at you. I'm not happy at you. I, I feel what you're going through in such a way that I understand you a little bit more than I did. And That is incredibly hard to do, especially with an enemy because our enemies are the people in life that we simply do not understand. And it's hard to do because it's like battling a brick wall. You can't see the person on the other end of the wall. Years ago, there were a few people. Uh, I had a few friends, and they weren't like your stereotypical enemies. You know, like arch nemesis coming at me with guns and swords. Like they were, they were my friends. I did I spent a lot of life with them, and we would eventually become what Jesus is describing here. I would eventually become this to them: a curser, a hater, an enemy. Former friends. And this type of thing didn't happen overnight. It happened little by little. You know how it happened for me? It happened with small uh, words or gestures or actions that rubbed me the wrong way. They weren't even that bad. I just took them personally. And someone would say something, I'd be like, "Ah," But I wouldn't talk to them about it. I wouldn't address it. I would just hold on to it and let it simmer like a seed in my gut. And for me, that was me taking a brick and putting it on the line between me and that person. Uh, A week or two weeks later, something would happen. I feel like I was, you know, offended by that. Like, oh, what were they thinking? Like, don't don't they know? Like, don't they know what I'm going through? Why would they say that? Why don't they appreciate me more? Why not this? Why not that? Second brick. And over time, I would create this little line of proverbial bricks made out of my offenses, my entitlements, my bitterness. And at a certain point, I didn't need to think too hard because now I created a line, a shape that would take on its own form. After that, things just started to spiral. I just started stacking bricks. Well, he did that. It didn't even have to do with the person. Maybe someone else would share something. I would immediately interpret it. Oh, yeah, that, uh, of course they would do that. They've had it out for me since the beginning. Stacking bricks. Until before you know it, there was a wall of the bricks of my offense between me and these other people. You know what happened at that point? I couldn't see them. All I could see were my offenses. And that's how I operated. It got to such a point that I couldn't even think about this group of people. And they're not in this building. It's not any of you, okay? This isn't a passive-aggressive sermon here. (laughs) Smiling. (laughs) Got to a point where I'm like, I could not even think of their face without the brick wall of my offenses rising up before me. I want to fast forward through the depression, the burnout, and everything that I taught. If you ever want to hear that, you can look at the Messy Church series where I bleed all of my emotions upon the congregations of Santa Barbara to find what that season in my life was like, because I got sick. I got sick from my own hatred and unforgiveness. But when I got healed, there were a lot of things in play there, but one of them was, I remember... Uh, at one point, realizing what that person had gone through at a particular time when I had first gotten offended. And you know what happened? Something clicked. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, of course they said what they said and did what they did. Like, I probably would too. And it didn't justify their actions in my mind. It didn't make it okay. It didn't change me. But all of a sudden, something shifted. I understood that person on the other end of the wall and all of a sudden a brick came down to the ground. I would continue to do that. It would take years. Little bricks would come off. Face-to-face conversations. Arguments. Infighting. Bricks would go back up and then they'd come back down until eventually I could see their face. And at a certain point in my life I just started to, I almost started to weep because I wasn't looking at the brick wall anymore, the symbolic brick wall. I was seeing my old friend. And something that I had not experienced in a long time started to well up inside me. It was love. And I realized for the first time, for the first time in many years, I love this person. And all I needed to do was understand them A little bit. Hate often just begins one brick at a time. One brick being put up at a time. Empathy, that vignette of love, starts with one brick being taken down at a time. And this is what Jesus tells us to do when he commands us to expect nothing in return, to bless those who curse us, To love our enemies. What's he doing? He's trying to get us face-to-face with the people that we want nothing to do with. To be aware of them and not just ourselves and our own entitlements. The Jesuit uh, priest, Anthony DeMello, wrote this. A pretty long quote, but it's really good, so I didn't want to chop it up. I'm just going to read the whole thing. He says, Love springs from awareness. It is only in as much as you see someone as he or she really is, here and now, and not as they are in your memory or your desire or in your imagination or your projection that you can truly love them. Otherwise, it is not the person that you love, but the idea that you have formed of this person or this person as the object of your desire, not as he or she is in themselves. And this involves the enormous discipline of dropping your desires, Your prejudices, your memories, your projections, your selective way of looking. A discipline so great that most people would rather plunge headlong into good actions and service than to submit to the burning fire of this kind of asceticism. So the first ingredient of love is really to see each other. To take the brick wall down one brick at a time and to see and understand and empathize and to feel. For those of you that think, I love everybody. I'm a Christian. I don't like them, but I love them. Ask yourself this. Do you also understand them? Could you sit across the table from that person that you want to avoid and recite to them what they're going through in such an accurate way that they would agree with you? Because if you can't, perhaps you're missing out on the divine life because it is impossible to hate somebody that you understand. Try it. It is impossible to hate somebody that you understand. Which means that if that's true, as Jesus is trying to scrunch us up against the very people that we want nothing to do with, to bless them, to be good towards them, to pray for them, to talk to them, to love them, then this love is also a tremendous kind of freedom. Why is it the good life? Because it's a freedom from the things that have been holding us down for years. For me, entitlement, unforgiveness, bitterness, rage, anger. I'm telling you years later, I am happy to be free. While psychologists might call it empathy, the Bible simply calls it one aspect of love. And it's the good life precisely because it's a free life. And when you are able for the first time to experience a Monday morning without bitterness or anger or unforgiveness or the harboring of resentment, you will understand, at least by glimpse, what Jesus meant when he spoke about this. It's the good life precisely because it's the free life. And so Jesus isn't here Or in other places, just giving us a list of impossible commands. Love people that you hate. (laughs) Curse people who bless you. (laughs) Like my cousin when I was a kid, just with his palm on my head saying, hit me, hit me, hit me. (laughs) Like that's not God. (laughs) He's not telling you things to do so that you can simply fail and he can laugh at you or beat you over the head with his, his holy stick. Jesus seems to believe that people can actually live this way. And when he describes the life of the kingdom, he gives us everything that we need to step into that. To those whom God calls, he also equips. And Jesus isn't giving us a list of undesirable, impossible commands. He's simply showing us how free you and I can actually live but it's only available in Jesus Christ. And in this last verse, in verse 35 and 36, Jesus would end this by saying, you do all of these things for God the Father has been kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Love others because you, love your enemies because you have been God's enemy and he loved you unconditionally. God loved you, gave everything that he had, sent his son to die on the cross, his most prized and precious possession, to die on the cross, rise from the dead, undergo all of that shame and emotion and trial and tribulation without any guarantee of uh, reciprocity, without any guarantee that you would ever say yes, he still did it. Because the gospel is not the good news that you have loved God so well. The gospel is not the good news that you have loved people so well, and it's certainly not the good news that Chris Lazo has loved his enemies so well. The gospel is the good news that God has loved you so well. God loved us, not that we loved him. The gospel is that Jesus came to give people who were poor and hungry and empty and excluded and hate-filled a chance at experiencing what true love is. When we were not loving, as Paul would say in Romans, to put a paraphrase, Christ died for us. And it's not that we loved God, but that God loved us. And there he proved it on a hill called Calvary where he died and bled that our hostilities would be washed away and we would be able to step into the freedom that we can have in Christ. And there on Calvary is the gift of love where the walls of hostility are replaced with avenues of love. This is the life that he lives even if you don't. Even if you failed. This is his life, but... invites us into his life to experience what it's like to love God and neighbor the good life for those of us who measure is measured by how much love you can give and receive and perhaps you're here today and you have failed to love people and I want you to know that you're in the right place if you're running dry if you find yourself filled with hostility or even irritation, maybe you find yourself easily irritated by people or things or circumstances, perhaps you're struggling with bitterness or unforgiveness, I don't want you to leave this place under an overwhelming canopy of guilt and shame because that's not yours in Christ. I want you to bring that guilt and bitterness and anger and unforgiveness to Jesus Christ who's able to take it away. So if that's you, perhaps the best thing you can do is to not try to love better, but to receive love from the one who has loved you without measure and allow Jesus Christ in this moment to begin setting you free one brick at a time. I'm going to ask uh, Gabrielle to come up and, you know, usually we... We'll spend uh, the remainder of our gathering together singing three or four songs. And the point of that is to reflect so that we're not running out and forgetting what the Lord has worked in our hearts. It's to just marinate there and to reflect. But I don't know that we necessarily need that reflection this morning. I feel like we've been reflecting. And you already know who that person is. And we're already keenly aware of our failures. So what I want to do instead is I'm not, going to, I'm not going to do three to four songs. We're going to do one song. But as we do it, and even before we do it, let's just ask for the love that we don't have and desperately need and for the God of the universe to pour his love into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the best thing that we need right now is not to love others better but to simply be loved by God. And if that's where you're at, I want to invite you for the next four minutes to sit softly and receive. Heavenly Father, I ask that today as we end our gathering together through song, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would do all that you need to do in order to heal some of the stuff going on inside us and I know in a room packed like this there are certainly people who have been hurt and shamed and left to the wayside abandoned struggling and I just praise you God because you are not like our other heroes who have left us there you're not like the other supposed heroes that have waited for us to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps or to meet you halfway you have met us the entire way and so I ask that again as you have been so faithful to do week in and week out you would meet us here these next few minutes and you would reveal the father heart of our God You take away our sin and our shame our bitterness our unforgiveness and that in place of those things you would simply bring healing